On You Don't Know Dick, we, with the help of friends and special guests, look at the film and television career of actor Dick Miller. So let's begin. Welcome to You Don't Know Dick, the career of actor Dick Miller. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the green Goliath, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm feeling pretty Goliath-y, so that was a good choice today, Doug. You know, Liam, you've had your shot, one of your shots. Have you had your second shot yet? Oh, I've had both. I am a, and it's been two weeks, so I'm a fully vaxxed boy. I've got all kinds of superpowers. You're ready to get out there into the world and to start, you know, interacting mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. people. Have any orgies planned in the next couple of weeks? Uh, no orgies. I, I felt like my first step out into the world was just going to be to go to the movies. That was going to be my big, <laughs> my big reckless move. Uh, but then it turns out that there's nothing playing that I wanted to see. So I'm waiting for something to come out that I'll go to the movies. That'll be my, my first uh, uh, taking my life into my own hands. Is there something coming up? I mean, there are still movies scheduled to come out in the next few months. Is there a movie that's like, that's going to be the one, the one that's going to be my return, even if it isn't technically the first movie that you see in a theater after vaccination? That's a very good question. I'm 100%. I have no idea. I have not been paying attention to what's coming out to even know. I've just been so involved in thinking about older movies between our podcasts, and uh, I'm trying to schedule our next uh, online event that mm -hmm. I haven't really been thinking about uh, what's coming out soon. I probably should. How about Dune? The Dune film is coming out soon. Actually, it's not until like October or November. Yeah, I, I was going to say. But, I, but hopefully, I'll get soon. to the theater before then. <laughs> um, you know, I I don't know, Doug. I, I, do you feel? I feel skeptical about Dune, and I don't mean I feel skeptical about this Dune. I feel skeptical about Dune as a thing we could put in a movie form. I just don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> well, I've I've never read the book, and uh, even though I I had when I was watching Twin Peaks: The Return last year for the first time, I uh, had uh, mentioned many times I was going to watch the David Lynch version. I've yet to ever watch it, even for the first time. And I figure I'm going to kind of compactly watch that one and then watch the new one. I don't have any emotional connection to it. In fact, I'm starting to wonder why I even brought it up as a movie I was anticipating, Liam. Uh, because people are talking about it. It's in the zeitgeist. <laughs> I don't know, you know if anyone is talking about it at this exact moment. You don't think so? I still, still pe see people excited about it. Like, I think there's a lot of faith in that director. Um, Denis Villeneuve, the person yes. that you cannot pronounce his name because no, you are I not really can't. a bilingual Canadian. No, I am uh, certainly not. <laughs> all right. Let's, let's move this conversation aside. Today. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest today is the director of 2016's Broken Mile, 2018's Life Changer, and most recently, the universally acclaimed documentary Clapboard Jungle. It's Justin McConnell. Justin, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Uh, nice <laughs> to be here. And to catch up on what you guys were talking about, I'm tomorrow is two weeks for my first shot. And I just rewatched David Lynch's Dune about a month ago and uh, loved the ride. So nice to be here. So I, actually, I guess that does, even though now I've already admitted that I haven't seen David Lynch's Dune, where do you fall on the Lynch's Dune uh, uh, range of love or not understand? Uh, let's put it this way. I'd seen it in the mid nineties, let's say when I was a teenager and I don't think I got it. Like I, I really appreciated the practical puppet work and all the weirdness and the scope of it. 
Uh, now rewatching it uh, a month ago, I immediately ordered the Blu-ray as soon as I was done wow. of watching it uh, on streaming. And um, I think it's a really fascinating misfire. So it, it's it's not a bad film. I, I think it's incredibly ambitious, but I do think some somewhere along the line, it feels like one of those things where they're like, okay, now we have to put four books worth of story into 20 minutes to finish this movie. Let's just right. go for it. Um, but I, the cast is amazing. The production design's awesome. The effects are great. And it's just so fucking weird at times. Like it's... <laughs> Uh, it's David Lynch's Dune. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure the Jodorowsky version would have been even crazier, but considering it's a studio, uh, studio manipulated project that, you know, <laughs> David Lynch had handcuffs on a little bit. It's still pretty sure. nuts. It's a lot it's of a fun. miracle that it's a miracle that it even exists. So oh, yeah, I think for it's, sure. it's just one of those things where you kind of, I think you're like me, Justin, I'm not going to speak for you. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'll take an ambitious misfire over a movie. That's just good every oh, single yeah. time for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm all over that. <laughs> Make it weird, man. I'm into that. <laughs> Make it weird. Uh, Justin, we're here to t- today to talk in just a little bit about Joe Dante's Explorers. We're going to yes. go into why you thought that that was a movie we should be talking about in just a few minutes. But I wanted to get your take on something that's been a, bit, a little bit controversial over the last few years, and that is 80s nostalgia. Uh, there's been a lot of it in in and I mean I I think a lot of people right now are probably thinking of Ready Player One, but it's not just that. There have been novels. There's a lot of movies that kind of throw back to Spielbergian '80s movies. Do you have any? I mean, I'm sure you you grew up in that era like I did, and that you yeah. have a lot of strong feelings about it. Do you have any uh, particular feelings about this kind of wave of nostalgia that's been hitting the last few years? Well, I mean, I do like the aesthetic of it. Mm-hmm. I, I I like the lighting and I'm I listen to synthwave and I write synthwave, which is <laughs> even fucking weirder. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I write that shit too. But like, it's one of those things where the actual aesthetic that they built up as '80s nostalgia is almost like what a '90s someone born in the '90s would remember '80s nostalgia yes, as, 100%. as opposed to as opposed to actual 80s nostalgia. And I'm okay with that aesthetic. I like the aesthetic itself is cool. I think it's overdone a lot. I think it gets used in places where it's not suitable. And a lot of times what's missing is the wonder uh, of of what those sort of films and, and, you know, that sense of awe and like innocence and well, maybe innocence is the wrong word, but anyway, Long story short is I really like the aesthetic. I just think like uh, give it five years and we're going to have 90s nostalgia and it's going to look <laughs> exactly the same because <laughs> it that's kind of what it is. It's this weird hybrid of two decades that uh, are not necessarily accurate and they jump over the timeline frequently. And like, you know, you'll get a, a non-diegetic music playing from like the 1997 or something to <laughs> in, a, in the 1989 scene. Uh, like s- stuff like that happens all the time. But I'm, I'm not going to complain about it on an aesthetic level and like a stylistic level because I, I, I like that look and I like that feel and that sound. But mm-hmm. there's definitely a caveat there of, of just like, yeah, but get it right. I think I'm not going to talk about what it is uh, specifically, but there was a show I was watching recently where it takes place in a cable access television studio in like the late 70s, early 80s. Sure. And all of their broadcasts, when they actually showed what they were shooting, were in anamorphic widescreen, <laughs> anamorphic titles. And I, I'm, I'm like, uh, try a little bit, at least try a little bit to do the research. Like that sort of thing bo- bothers me. But uh, anyway. 
I'm glad that you brought up. I know uh, one of the things that you really hit on there was this awe and wonder. Those are two words that I think we're going to be using a little bit when we're talking about explorers. It's something mm -hmm. that's captured in that movie and a few of the other movies around the time that that movie came out that I feel like it's something that's very difficult to recapture and feels very specific to this era of 80s movies. Liam, mm -hmm. can you confirm that for me? I mean, maybe it's, again, I have to be very careful when it comes to nostalgia, right? I don't want to uh, trade in these kind of cliches just because we grew up in it, just because when I was a kid, I saw these movies for the first time and I can relate to the awe and wonder that we're seeing on the screen. But it does kind of feel like that there, and this is a silly way of putting it, but that there's a lot more scenes of people staring into the sky or staring into lights and like seeing things that they almost can't believe that they're seeing and the music rising at the same time. But it's obviously more than that. What do you think about this idea of awe and wonder? That's interesting. I had not really put that particular spin on uh, stuff from the 80s. Uh, and I think... Our perspective on it, I'm assuming we're all kind of similar ages, is a little mm -hmm. bit different than some people because for some people who seem to be nostalgic for the 80s, it's all just a mystery. They don't actually know what it is that they <laughs> are nostalgic for. The same way that I would argue, actually, uh, 90s nostalgia has already started. This conversation we're having about the 80s aesthetic is like – washed like we're already washed uncles because gen gen z has been on the 90s kick for a long time and not just like on tiktok either like no, there's in, like pen 15 right that, yeah, that's yeah. Really, yeah 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 or even like out in the world like take a look at a band like code orange like uh that band is definitely you know all that early computer animation from the 90s that looks like trash they're recreating it because that's what they're nostalgic <laughs> for and and you know a lot of kids are like yo that's sick like they think that's awesome and to me i'm like no that was such an embarrassment what are you doing <laughs> um, but anyways all that to say that i think this idea that we don't have quite you know my memories of the 80s yes there is a bit of that like wonder i i think there's a you know obviously we could talk about the influence of spielberg but also people who were influenced by spielberg all that stuff but there's also a lot of uh still grit in the 80s you know there was a lot mm -hmm. of like uh of uh of uh, unmitigated violence uh a lot of uh, uh re reintroducing of xenophobia in new and fun ways mm. uh and so like that's what i think of and, and when i think of the 80s i mean again not to be the guy who's into punk and hardcore when i think of the 80s too i just think of everyone hating reagan like i just mm -hmm. think of like mm -hmm. you know uh, your entire politics could be reagan sucks you didn't know you didn't need to know any other theory or political anything if you just thought reagan was bad then you were basically a leftist in the 80s and that was like a big deal so like that's that's all part of the stew for me on the other hand i, I you know I want to be skeptical of other people's nostalgia to some extent. I will say, though, a lot of my memories, even though I was born in 79, a lot of my strongest memories are from the 90s. And then the 90s, and it started in the 80s, we were bombarded with 60s nostalgia. Everything mm -hmm. was fucking 60s yeah. all the time. And, like, boomers had to constantly remind all of us that anything important that happened in the world happened in the 60s. And so the idea that, like, maybe there's a generation of people getting their version of that now yeah. is, like... <laughs> cool man whatever i guess it yeah. all goes in cycles like i'm not gonna judge people for being like i don't know i think my childhood was the best uh i just wish more people again as we've sort of said already would do it accurately and i think 
uh, with a little bit of nuance that we would remember mm-hmm. that the 80s I mean uh, the 80s should be remembered as a time of war because it was when the Reagan administration declared war on the black community and through the war on drugs uh, basically we had an internal war in this country and uh, that should be part of our nostalgia as well as you know oh Mickey you're so fine uh, I, I do feel that war like nost- thing is part of the nostalgia though because we've, st- we've got stuff now about the satanic panic movement coming up yeah, absolutely. more frequently yeah. and, and uh, with a feeling of, of you know stranger danger and all that stuff that seeps into the nostalgia cycle right now um 100%. i think wasn't it Lindsay ellis who did a big video on the 20 years nostalgia cycle uh yes I don't know, and how we're basically it makes sense we're in the 90s right now in fact we're probably going to be in the in the early 2000s soon enough oh, which I is i, I, I don't like, even know what that aesthetic is it, it's, really. it's everybody <laughs> yearning for the days of avid farts like when, when, <laughs> when like a scene would be cut together with so many individual cuts and flashes and wipes and shit that it just was lost all sense of geography and meaning. Um, you know, the sword fit fish aesthetics coming back big time. Oh God. <laughs> Fuck. Justin, we are ostensibly here to talk about the actor, Dick Miller. I just want to get your kind of your general thoughts of him on as a performer. Do you have any favorite Dick Miller performances? And have you ever run into him in, in any of your kind of uh, trials and tribulations? Well, he's in Clapboard Jungle. So yes, I know it. Yeah, that's yeah. Part, yeah. So I met him. Uh, yeah, I, I wor- actually worked with him and I, I, I got to talk with his the wife Lainey and him a fair bit. Um, but uh, before that, I mean, Dick Miller is, you know, the documentary that... Uh, that was made that guy dick miller is, is exactly accurate in that you just see him pop up in all kinds of stuff a lot of joe dante movies mind you but a lot of other stuff too and he was always a presence who your eye would be drawn to and even if you just had like you know 30 seconds of screen time you're like oh there's a fully fleshed character like he very <laughs> much uh owned everything he did uh, and i i really liked him all the way back to bucket of blood you know one of his biggest uh, biggest and most appreciated roles, you know, where he's, he just owns that character. Um, kind of set the pace for, for lots of stuff going forward. Obviously, the Gremlins movies are the ones that everybody really knows him from, from for, but, you know, he, he had his Walter Paisley character through a bunch of stuff too. Um, but as, as a person and stuff, so I've got some pretty strong memories uh, connected to him and, and Laney and all that sort of thing. Uh, because I worked on the, the release of that guy, Dick Miller in Canada, I authored right. the DVD and mm-hmm. I helped with the promotion theatrically and he came to Toronto. So uh, for the theatrical screenings, IndyCan was doing a company I work with. Uh, so that's when I met him first. And then that year, which I think was 2015, they were doing the release of that guy, Dick Miller at the, uh, the Egyptian in LA and they did an entire Dick Miller weekend. So basically what the one night was that guy, Dick Miller, the actual premiere. And then the next night was uh, a triple feature of Gremlins, Gremlins 2 and Demon Knight uh, with guests. And the guests were like Rick Baker, <laughs> Leonard Malton, uh, wow. Dick Miller. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Uh, there, it was a lot of, oh, uh, Ernest Dickerson. Like there was like a good list of guests. And then I think the third night was Bucket of Blood. I can't remember the order of the nights. Anyway. I decided I planned a whole trip to LA around that, that weekend, uh, because I knew I'd have access to a bunch of people for, to interview for the documentary. All I right. had some meetings lined up to take in LA. Uh, so I spent a week in LA and I went to that weekend and I was there every night and, uh, and I shot a lot of the Q and a stuff. Some of it's on the demon night, the Q and uh, the demon night Blu-ray that screen mm-hmm. factory put out, uh, got to meet a lot of people that I didn't think I'd get to meet. Um, and it was just a really, it was a really cool weekend, but it was, it was like, especially that triple feature of like sitting through and at the Egyptian back to back of like Gremlins, Gremlins 2 and Demon Knight. It made me 
appreciate Dick even more, but realize how special all three of those films were to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got to go to his house to shoot the interview and stuff. And, uh, <laughs> and this was shortly, well, not shortly before he passed away, but you know, I didn't get to see him much since. Uh, but he just an incredibly gracious, nice man. And, uh, and his wife is a, is the nicest lady in the world. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, he was, he was actually technically supposed to, we tried to get him into life changer cause he was going to come to, uh, horror Rama as a guest, or it was being planned that he was going to come to horror Rama as a guest right around the time we were shooting life changer. So, uh, we, ha- we had asked him if he'd play, there's a part in life changer where, uh, Drew, the shapeshifter in the form of uh, Rachel, the dental hygienist, is at a farm where a bunch of bodies are stored and uh, an old farmer comes out and uh, and basically scares her off by, you know, questioning, what are you doing here? And that sort of thing. That was supposed to be Dick Miller. And uh, it, he, it just didn't line up. He did. He, I don't think he made it to Toronto or at least it wasn't on, on our shoot. It didn't line up with our shoot days, right. uh, but he was going to do it. And so, you know, at I, I almost had the chance to direct them too. So it, it's just kind of like, yeah, there's definitely a, a part of my life that uh, I, I absolutely um, cherish because I got some, to spend some time with Dick himself. So yeah. it's interesting right at this moment, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's becoming clear to me that you're the perfect guest for us, Justin, because it feels like all of our episodes right now have been leading up to you because we had Elijah Drenner, the director of that guy, Dick, Miller. that guy, Dick Miller. Yeah. And we had Kalen Vatnestel, who wrote they they came from within the 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 book on which mm-hmm. your upcoming documentary is based on, and he wrote True. of course the Dick Miller autobiography. So now we have you; it's all pieced together. So that actually leads me because I can I can't have you here and not at least breach the subject of this documentary. This is mm-hmm. a documentary about Canadian horror films, the history of Canadian horror films that yes is is upcoming. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm so excited about what, it. Yeah, okay, what's, what's your question? <laughs> my, my only my only question is, uh, this was announced fairly recently. How yes. hard was that to put together in a pandemic world to to make it so that you knew that because I mean, one of the things about watching Clapboard Jungle for anyone who has and hopefully you all have if you're listening right now, uh, or will in the near future is mm-hmm. that making these deals, putting these things together is already hard. How difficult was it to make this happen in a world where everyone is that much more distance from each other? Well, strangely, this was one where I was actually approached. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so what basically happened is Avi Fettergreen's known who's my co producer on uh, life change and he's an executive producer on clapboard jungle. He's a, he's like a really prolific Canadian producer who has made like, you know, 60 or 70 movies at this point. Um, he's known Kalen for years and he's actually wanted to do an adaption of Kalen's book sure. uh, uh, for quite a while. So once Clapboard Jungle was wrapping, and when I say wrapping, I'm still in post-production on the eight-episode series, so that's got to get finished first by the end of the summer before mm-hmm. I can move forward and actually start working on They Came From Within. Uh, basically, Avi approached me and said, listen, uh, I think you're the perfect guy to do this. Um, and I, th- I was a little hesitant at first, uh, just being honest, because I was like, well, okay, fine, but there's already a documentary called Tax Shelter Terrors, yep, that's and right. there's another one called A Quiet Revolution, which is a two-parter. Um, there's already existing documentaries about Canadian cinema. So how can we make one that stands out and punches above its weight? And like, actually, uh, you know, those are, I, I think those are both good documentaries. I, mm-hmm. I, uh, they just, they didn't, I haven't seen them make much of an impact. Like, I don't think very many people know they exist. Um, so I, I and that that's whether that's good or like, like it doesn't, that has no bearing on how good those movies are. Sure. It's, of course. It just like, I, I was thinking like, well, if I sign on to do this, great. It's, it's a good project. I would love to do it. Um, I just hope 
that we can do something new or fresh with it or whatnot. And, uh, and I had read his book and, uh, and I, I'd liked his book quite a bit. Um, but, and I, I figured, okay, well that era of horror is really, really, uh, interesting. And there's a lot of story to be told there. There's probably more story than a feature film can even fit. Right. Um, but I, uh, I thought about it a bit. I took another look through the book because a new copy was sent to me. Uh, and and, and I, I think I, I come up with a, enough of an angle that will keep it fresh and entertaining um, without being too much of a clip show. Because I don't mm-hmm. want it to be, uh, you know, I don't want it to just be talking head clip for movie, talking head clip for right. movie. Mm-hmm. I want it to be, I'm more inspired by something like what uh, Kayla just did with Woodlands Dark and uh date uh, it's such a long title i'm sorry I, yeah, i'm sorry yeah, kayla yeah, yeah. if you're listening to this i i've forgotten <laughs> i've forgotten the rest of the title anyway it i don't I, i'm not saying this one will be four hours long but it you know it that kind of approach uh from a sociological side, side of things and from uh getting some meaning and theme out of things as opposed to just like a clip show i thought that approach would be more interesting uh we're still hashing through it i've been talking to kayla and abby about it and stuff like that like there's going to be a lot of structural discussion and trying to figure out how to make this but most of all i want it to be like entertaining at a good clip and say more than just like yep we made that and it did this we made that and it did this so uh it's 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 definitely a project that anyway abby brought it to me and i agreed to do it and then we signed all the agreements and we have a solid production plan but we are still at a stage where we're shopping for uh, for broadcasters and stuff like that too. So what we don't know right now is the scope of the documentary. Right. Like I have, I have a plan to get as many interviews as I can, and I'm able to do that. And we're, you know, we're fingers crossed. We'll get the the big fish uh, that would that would would make it. You know, even that I'm not going to name who, but it's obvious. I think like, we all know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. We we already sort of have a line he, in. On he that. might be busy at the end. Yeah, of this he year, might. Well, we'll I, I mean, we'll anyway. It takes a while to shoot a documentary. So mm-hmm. the hope is, is that we get that particular big fish. Uh, I don't know yet, but um, it, it, if we start producing it before COVID is over, the cost to make it is significantly more than the cost it will right. be after. If I'm able to go around personally with a camera at various places and my, the cost is just getting me to, from place to place with a camera and a light kit uh, and some sound gear to just get these interviews, then that cost is way lower than the cost of me hiring local camera crews to go out with safety precautions and all of these different, you know, protocols to get these interviews because it's almost like triple the cost to do it that way. So uh, COVID makes everything more expensive. So it's almost like it's better we wait to start production till later in the year and hope for the best because we don't know the level of the budget we have right now. If, If we get certain broadcasters to sign on, we'll have a certain level of budget. If we don't, we'll have a, a lower level of budget and it, it, it really dictates the strategy. So yeah, that's where we're at with it right now. I'm excited to do it, but it's a few We're months still. before before I get to start doing anything with it, really. I still haven't even finished dog earring, and, and dog earring is the wrong word. Um, what's it called? Uh, post-it noting throughout the right. entire book yet. Like, I, I'm still in that process, so <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how it goes. It's early days for that documentary. Uh, just to make sure that Justin doesn't get in any trouble, the documentary he was referring to was Woodland's Dark and Days Bewitched, A History of that's Folklore, the one. which yep. is getting nothing but, I mean, people are oh, raving about oh, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I sat, I sat through it. I watched it through South by Southwest streaming, and it's it's a hell of a doc. And I, I really like that approach of, of, of making it more, just going a little deeper. And, uh, 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 you know, you can get so much out of Talking Heads, but if, if your line of questions, uh, well, for one thing, I shot a couple of the interviews in that documentary, in Kayla's mm-hmm. documentary, and her question sheet was like, oh, wow, 
yeah, she uh, she does her fucking research like that. That it was it was very much like, holy shit. Are you kidding me? Anyway, that was so I like that approach a lot, too, I, which is why, you know, with Clapboard Jungle, it wasn't like this. But, you know, bringing on researchers and making sure we have some pretty good authorities behind the scenes is, I think, essential to make this a memorable documentary. Well, I know I'm I, I'm excited. I was already excited about it, but after watching Clapboard Jungle, I knowing the sort of approach that you take to, even though it's obviously going to be a very different kind of documentary, mm-hmm. uh, I'm just all the more uh, anticipating it. And of course, I'm I'm a fan of your work anyway, Justin. We're here today to talk about Joe Dante's Explorers, a movie that I have a lot of strong feelings about. I know that uh, Liam has some very strong feelings about. It. <laughs> uh, Justin, why? Are we here to talk about it? Why is this a movie that you thought we should be exploring today? Ah, Explorers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Explorers is a weird one for me because it was a staple movie of my youth that I completely mm-hmm. forgot everything about. <laughs> so I probably the last time I watched it was like 91 or something. Like mm-hmm. I was probably 11 or something like that. Maybe even younger. Uh, but I remember, I still distinctly remember specific things about it, but like not, or I, I had until I just watched it last week, I had remembered specific things about it, but nothing that formed a complete picture of what the hell the movie was about. Like I, I had images of like the flying trash spaceship. Sure. Uh, and that's about it. I don't, I don't remember much else. I didn't remember that it was built out of a, like a Conklin tilt a whirl thing. Uh, Me I either. I was so yeah, shocked. Yeah. I was like, I was like, how could that not have stuck in my brain? Yeah, exactly. Tilt a whirl yeah. was my ride when I was a kid. <laughs> um, but, but rewatching it last week, cause I was trying to figure out which movie to do for this show. So I originally, I, the first one I chose to pay, watch was trail of the screaming forehead and Dick's in that for like, 10 seconds and he's he's good in it but he's like he's just a bartender he gets this marmy word in every once in a while uh and it would have been fun to do a deep dive on larry blamer stuff because uh mm-hmm. i'm such a lost skeleton of the cadaver fan but i watched that and i went okay that doesn't really fit because i don't have much to talk about there's not not just from the dick angle but like i don't think that's the best blamer film by a long shot uh so it's it's pr- i like it but i think it's the least interesting of like all of the five or features he's done so I thought it would be kind of a shitty episode, uh, but, then I, but then I watched. But then I watched. Uh, and that's no offense if Larry somehow hears this because I, I the other four are incredible and this one is still pretty good. But I just, just anyway, I'm gonna stop digging this hole. Um, but then I watched Explorers and was like, holy shit, this is pretty fucking good. And even the ending, which is wackadoo nuts, uh, I I just added this extra layer of charm of like I love that movies like this get made. Or got made rather. Mm-hmm. Um, it it it's a movie that brought back a lot of memories uh, that were long forgotten and uh, made me think of a. I don't want to call it a more innocent time in cinema, but uh, we, we're talking about that awe and wonder thing. And the I just watched uh, before three weeks before this, I watched Batteries Not Included for the first time in like right? thirty years or something like that. <laughs> and both those films have like a certain charm to them, and it, and it is that awe and wonder thing. It's the fact I think it's because the characters greet the unknown and the otherworldly with instead of fear, they greet it with, Oh, okay. How do we make this work for us? Or, Oh, well, that's fascinating. I didn't know this thing existed outside the realm of my perception. I'm going to explore it more. And I'm actually fascinated by this. I think now what happens when you end up with not in everything, but with a lot of things with you, when you end up with a character faced with the unknown, you get a smarmy retort. And then it's like, life goes on like normal. It's, it's, it's less, it's less about exploring deeper and more about, okay, shit, there's monsters now. 
Like it's a character going, oh, well, so that happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That kind of thing. So I, I just thought it would it would be a nice jumping off point. But I also really like Dick's character in this. It's not a huge mm-hmm. character, but he encapsulates that sense of awe and wonder because he, he's like law enforcement or something. He, you first meet him in a police chopper. He, he sees the, the flying trash spaceship thing and he reacts to it like, did you see that? And then he goes off on his own little investigation mm-hmm. to try and figure out what it is. And then the last shot we see of him in the movie is him like going, good on you, kid, as he like yeah. smiles as this flies into the air, like this lost piece of his childhood is, has been resurrected. And he's like, holy shit, magic exists. And uh, you it. get you get all that off of his face. And I really like I, I like I, I like the dick and like even when he's like Walter Paisley in The Howling, you know, he's just a fucking bookshop owner. Any <laughs> asshole could play that job. But the way Dick Miller played that was just like okay that's can he have his own movie like it's that kind of thing <laughs> well absolutely yeah we definitely that's the there's a world weariness that uh, dick miller brings to his roles but there's mm-hmm. also a warmth that i think that people don't necessarily always uh paint him with when it comes to yep. the way that he, he 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 brings his own personality to these performances and i think you really get a sense of that in explorers right before we started recording liam was telling me about how there's memories of that character, that Dick Miller character, and Liam, maybe mm-hmm. you're best. You're probably best to to voice this, but this idea of this character that you think that you have, um, that you know what he is, that you know what he's all about. He's this gruff, you know, law enforcement guy. He's going to mm-hmm. be the guy who's the kids are going to have to 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 knock up against. But that's not who he ends up being. Do you want to talk to that just a little bit before we take the break? Sure. I mean, I I think that this movie was so kind of early for me in caring about films you know like I, i'm pretty sure. sure i saw this when it came out i would have been you, you were saying like, like me you kind of uh, you had conflated some of your memories with it with flight of the navigator yeah 100 i gotta rewatch that i just realized I owned <laughs> yeah yeah 100 yeah. percent. those movies were are all in my brain but uh, i'm pretty sure i saw this in theater but that that dick miller character that turn where um you think a character is an adversary but actually they're kind of on your side but especially mm-hmm. this sense that like I don't know, even know how to describe it, but we sort of have touched on it. This there's something in him that's been touched by these kids. There's something about his past, whatever. That's become like an archetype for me. Like when that happens in a movie, when a <laughs> when a fucking character who you think is one thing turns out to be something else. That's like a, I want to high five someone moment. I feel like yeah. it, I feel like it was like written <laughs> like this movie. I mean, we're gonna get into. It. I don't want to get into all this before the break, but suffice to say, whether it's the 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 kid team up the gnarly man filled with hope the weirdo aliens who are not what you expected <laughs> aspects of this movie are written into my fucking movie dna now that when they are echoed intentionally or unintentionally in other films they resonate with me whether they're earned or not even like the utterly ridiculous ending where of course his crush shows up and immediately kisses him like (laughs) no sense it makes no sense but it for me because this movie is so much a part of like my first movies i was like yeah that's right like it's just like (laughs) i get it and it's like really weird because now i'm thinking oh man how many other characters have i seen that have this the similar characteristics to the Stick Miller character that give me a sense of fucking hope in the world. And I'm like, <laughs> it's just because of this fucking movie. It's not because.
because of the world. It's because of explorers. <laughs> it's given you a, a false belief in how people are, unfortunately. Yeah. Yes. Well, <laughs> you live your life by explorers' rules, but really, it's like... I mean, don't get me wrong. It's also... It's fucking cop- begotten instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it's, also, it's also a little bit of copaganda because I don't believe oh, any, yeah. any police officer feels hope like this. But. Well, maybe a small-time officer who doesn't get to do shit. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. Like, I mean, yeah. as far as we can tell, all he does is ride around in helicopters to make sure no one's in the airspace. Which yeah, like, like he's got every... city money. He's got to spend the city money. He's like, well, yeah. let's use more fucking chopper fuel. Like, what yeah. else do you want to... I love, I love the idea that any small town has aerial police officers. Like, yeah. In fucking yeah. Maryland, too. Like, get yeah. out of here. All right. Well, maybe we'll explore that in just a little bit. We're going to oh. take... We're going to take our break. When when we return, we're going to dig into 1985's Explorers. Hey, man, I waited a lifetime for something like this to happen. I want to find out what the hell it was we saw up there. Okay, well, I saw something down in the creek. I I don't know. I can't help it. Can't you understand that? All I know is this is driving me crazy. Gordon, look, man, I've been having dreams about this lately. Yes, really. The weird thing is, I haven't had dreams like this since I was a kid. A boy obsessed with 50s sci-fi movies about aliens has a recurring dream about a blueprint of some kind, which he draws for his inventor friend. With the help of a third kid, they follow it and build themselves a spaceship. Now what? That's the IMDb <laughs> summary of 1985's Explorers, directed by the great Joe Dante, uh, also the director, of course, uh, of some of the movies we've already covered on You Don't Know Dick, including Gremlins and uh, The Howling. Written by Eric Luke, uh, also wrote and directed another one of uh, the kind of 80s staples for me, the sequels to the not-quite-human Disney movies about the android boy. Also wrote a lot of uh, well-known cartoons, including Gargoyles, Tales from the Crypt Keeper, and episodes of uh, a later series of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Has recently gotten to pod podcasting with Extruding America, but Eric Luke, not really a name that you hear a lot in connection with a lot of the movies that I kind of grew up with, but certainly uh, made his mark for me here with 1985's Explorers. The film stars Ethan Hawke in his first role, River Phoenix in his first role, and Jason Presson in, well, I don't know if it's his first role, but not uh, an actor that we saw a lot afterwards. Maybe we'll talk about that in just a little bit as well. Some other familiar faces show up, including James Cromwell. Robert Picardo has a number of uh, very uh, memorable roles here, and we have Dick Miller as Charlie Drake, who we'll talk about in just a little bit. Rather notoriously, Explorers was taken away from Joe Dante and uh, edited without his kind of uh, say-so, uh, which may explain why the third act is a little bit, well, it's a bit confused, let's say. And we'll talk <laughs> about that in just a moment as well. But before we get to any of that, let's get our general thoughts, starting with our guest today, Justin McConnell. What do you think about 1985's Explorers? I I feel like I've said a lot about what I already think about it, but mm-hmm. I... I enjoyed the hell out of this rewatch. I, I really appreciated it for what it was and not, and what it was trying to be and not necessarily, I think removed from all that sort of dis- distance, I could see sort of like how the kid would version of me would have really appreciated yes. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that gave me sort of a context for the, the more outlandish moments that uh, I still fully appreciate because they're so fucking weird. Like I, <laughs> that whole alien section at the end is, is the thing that turned a lot of people off the movie. And I was sure. just like, bring it on, man. Just bring that shit on. Cause it's, I especially love the idea that the, the aliens have been observing us for so long that they speak our language through t- television shows, but they've never revealed their identities to us because 
they watch our shows, so they see what happens to all the aliens that come to Earth, and that we basically just kill them and curb stomp the fuckers. Mm-hmm. So they're like, uh, we're not going there. It's dangerous. So that's, that's, I love that concept of like, there's no first contact because we put it out into the universe that don't fuck with us. That's, that's it's just Absolutely. the funniest thought. <laughs> I'm glad that you brought up the fact that I think the general consensus is that is that the third act of Explorers is weak compared to the first two. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to necessarily push back on that. I will say that I'm right with you. I felt very childlike watching this. It really just brought back a lot of those feelings, a lot of memories of watching it on VHS with my brothers when I was growing up. But I do have to say that when the kids get back to Earth in this movie, I don't know what, like the rest of the movie doesn't even feel like the movie knows what's going on at that point. (laughs) It's like they have this beacon and now they can contact the aliens through their dreams, but you never see the aliens in the dreams. It's just these kids Mm -hmm. flying over the CG circuit board. I mean, in some ways it feels incredibly hopeful and it really hits that kind of, again, just not to, to fixate too much, that sense of awe that the rest of the movie is able to capture so well. But it also, for me, it's just like, that's how the movie ends? What did they expect people were gonna come out of the theater thinking? Uh, I guess maybe they shouldn't have thought so much about that. The movie did not uh, do particularly well financially at the time, though again, I had no idea. When I was watching it over and over with my family in 1988 and 89 and 1990, for us, we thought that this movie was, you know, you'd put it next to Back to the Future, you'd put it next to Star Wars, but for us, you know, you'd continue with that list with Krull, and I I was telling telling, uh, Liam before we started, uh, the uh, Empire Pictures film Eliminators, which my brothers and I watched again and again. making contact. (laughs) Yes, yeah, exactly, 100%. Liam, your thoughts, I know that you have a lot of thoughts here, tell Mm -hmm. me what you think of 1985 explorers i mean like i said i i i don't think i'm inaccurate when i say this film is kind of written into my dna as a film fan because i think i saw it maybe not the first thing i saw in the theater but it's one of my first kind of theater memories is seeing this film and and re-watching it on cable later and you know it it didn't play a ton but i definitely saw it uh, again and this idea i mean there's a few things to, to, to sort of explore for me. This idea of the oh. three losers no. getting together and forming a team and putting something together, that, that kind of like that team-up quality was incredibly attractive to me, especially mm-hmm. because uh, I didn't have, like, uh, friends. That wasn't mm-hmm. a thing in my life for the most part. Uh-huh. Um, I, I really, like, I, I made friends here and there, but they mostly weren't very close, and I really wasn't in a crew like a like a bunch of like people who hung out all the time till high school you know um and so it's there's something about this story i also think uh the other kid you know in the description you've got the main you got ethan hawk and you've got nerdy river phoenix and then you got the other guy (laughs) and uh when i was a kid i identified with the other guy so hard like i just felt like that was me in so many ways Mm -hmm. um and, and and uh, I don't know. There's just something about this idea that you would have this experience as a kid and then you would stay in your kid world with almost no interference from adults. Right. And that, that, that ingenuity and insightfulness of a child would lead you to space. Now, granted, a lot of them finding these aliens is the aliens initiative. But, you know, mm-hmm. they, they, they did a lot of things on their own. They wrecked yeah. the drive-in <laughs> on their own. You know, like that was cool. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, just think, I just think there's a lot to this idea that they have – their own kind of um volition and 
<clears throat> not you know I, I think that was a theme in the 80s that a lot of mm. kids were on their own and on their own they could do a sure. lot of good or it was a, a latchkey thing that yeah, was, absolutely. yeah it was such a common thing in the 80s. yeah mm. and and i don't know that that was everyone around me's experience a lot of kids uh in the town that i grew up in whether their family was healthy or not they were like embedded in a family and no f- offense to my mom but it was just me and my mom so if my mom was working I was solo. I did whatever the fuck I wanted. You know what I mean? <laughs> so those films that had those characters, I always identify with that. Even though these kids had various kinds of families, they seemed to have a lot of freedom to do what they wanted. And that I kind of connected with to a certain extent. Um, but I think really the, the, it is, again, um, not to harp on a theme here, but something about Dick Miller as this old man who you see as like a potential barrier for them, who in the end like wishes them something well, like this connects mm-hmm. with him in some way. Something about that like stuck with me for a long fucking time. And we even said on this very show, you asked me my first memory of Dick Miller, mm-hmm. and I falsely identified Gremlins because I think that's yeah. we would all uh, of a certain age assume. Well, of course, Dick Miller, Gremlins. That's your first. No, this when, when that scenes happened on this rewatch for me, I. I was like oh shit that's how i know dick miller like that yeah. is fucking dick miller for me and so like the, the way that stuck with me i will also say in defense of the ending well not defense let's just let's just say as an adult i admit the ending is strange and possibly truncated in a weird way but i think there were a number of kids films that kind of ended in a way that suggested it, it wasn't over that this was yeah. just the beginning that like the adventure <laughs> would continue which as a cynical adult, I'm like, yeah, that's so that they could have a TV show or a toy line <laughs> or something. But like at the time, that was the perfect ending for me. The idea mm-hmm. that you would wrap up a movie perfectly didn't appeal to me at all. I want mm-hmm. the idea that's going to keep going and I could keep going with it in my imagination. So like watching it as an adult, part of me is like, that's it. That's the fucking movie. That's what we're doing. <laughs> and then, but, but then I'm thinking like as a kid, I would have been like, yeah, like fucking yes. Like that would have filled me with so much excitement to see it. To it see. lit a fuse, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There, this was also the heyday of kind of celebrating nerd people. Yeah. And I, mm-hmm. I know that that has kind of gone wrong, especially because now everything kind of caters to the nerd mindset. But in the 80s, and I'm not even just talking about Revenge of the Nerds, but even just the idea of someone embracing science as part of their personality. You got River Phoenix character here. I remember watching Real Genius obsessively in the 80s. I watched Space Camp, that yeah. the, uh, beleaguered film from the mid 80s that came out when the Challenger uh, exploded. But I mean, the, the movies that that kind of if you were felt like an outsider, which I'm sure every kid did, uh, and and maybe more so than ever in the 1980s when you might be were feeling like an outsider and were a little bit more isolated, a lot of these movies kind of really honed in on those feelings. I want to talk a little bit about the performances. Now, this uh, movie really does rely on the interplay between these three kids. The parents are almost non-entities. We have River Phoenix's Wolfgang character. His parents are kind of funny. His father is James Cromwell. And, you know, they're kind of goofy in the way that a lot of the families were shown to be in a lot of these Mm -hmm. 80s movies. But this movie lives and dies by how well these kids can interact. And I think the art of child performances, uh, it's really kind of, the 80s was the peak of that. Uh, Liam, before we started recording, you said that you found that the kid from The NeverEnding Story to be very irritating. <laughs> oh, yeah, I would fight him now. As an adult, I would beat him up. <laughs> Justin, what did you think of the performances of the three kids in this movie? 
Well, I mean, Ethan Hawke is certainly better uh, in The Good Lord Bird, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, that's debatable. A silly, that's a, yeah, I mean, <laughs> silly thing to say. No, I do. I, I think they they're all pretty endearing, and uh, especially I especially found River Phoenix because his later roles were much. I mean, he didn't have a lot of later roles, tragically, but mm-hmm. his later roles were much more playing into the cool guy kind of persona. Yes. Mm-hmm. And this one, he's got super super well first of all part of the reason he's ostracized because is because he's german in the 80s which i i find kind of fascinating because yeah. there's still that residual uh residual xenophobia left over from world war ii mm-hmm. and he's 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 also a full-on nerd because his family are scientists so it, it, i think he plays a really reserved character that just shows a lot of fascination for life like he's the one who gets trapped in the ball uh, and, and flown through the fucking earth. And when he comes out of it, he's like, I think I can make this work. I think I could fly us. And, and instead of like, I almost died. He's yes. like, I, 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 okay. That was a good experiment kind of thing. And I really, I fi- I really identified with like his approach to that character. Um, Jason Preston actually really surprised me because he's, he's somebody who didn't do much afterwards. Like mm-hmm. I, first of all, the only reason I know that Saturday, the 14th strikes back exists is because I looked on IMDb and was like, Oh, that movie exists. And he's in it. So I grew up <laughs> watching that. Never saw the first one. I only oh, ever really? saw the series. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and he's in Lady in White and stuff, and he's in Gremlins Two really briefly. He shows up, yeah, he shows up briefly in Gremlins Two, and I I was I I was saying to Liam when he shows up there, I remember when I saw Gremlins Two for the first time, I was like, "That's the kid from Explorers." Whatever happened to him? But but not a lot. I mean, TV roles and stuff. But like, he clearly probably could have had a pretty good career because he he's as naturalistic as the other two, and uh, and the three of them together have a really really good chemistry. So I definitely. I definitely think the performances kind of make the movie because you're just with them for the first two thirds, right? There's there's some effects stuff, and the the actual movie itself is 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 it built around this sense of fascination and you know discovering this new technology and what where are these signals from space coming from and all that sort of thing. But without those three kids bringing bringing what they did to the table, you, you got nothing. So uh, I, I think they work great. I think it's it was probably just a wide net they cast like mm-hmm. to find fresh faced kids and it uh it worked clearly especially worked for ethan hawk uh, <laughs> i mean a first role for ethan hawk and river phoenix pretty incredible in terms yep. of the casting but yeah it does make you feel like like jason preston was kind of the odd man out here even though yeah he totally holds his own uh mm-hmm. in in the film i just like the idea of kids it's not that the kids are acting like kids in this movie, but it is something that it can make some of the movies, if you go back and watch them from the 1980s, and of course I'm thinking of the Monster Squad right now, that when the kids are acting like shitty kids, like I was a shitty kid in the 80s, it can be a little hard to watch. These are kind of more idealized versions of kids yeah. uh, that you're seeing here, but they play it so well. And I, Ethan Hawke, for some reason, the, the way that he just stares at nothing at all, and you can see kind of the the motors whirring in his head about what he wants, you know, out of this experience. The his his apprehension and excitement about saying we come in peace. I think it is just a really endearing role. It it I think it made me feel that kind of endearing feeling towards Ethan Hawke as an adult, even though this was so you know this is still just a performance of a kid. Mm. Liam, any thoughts on these performances? I think from a viewer, just a purely viewer standpoint. 
Jason Preston is my man because uh, Ethan Hawke is so sincere. He's an asshole. Like, <laughs> yeah. He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's so he's so like passionate. I was a I was a very sincere kid. I think that might yeah. be one of the. the he's he's so he's so passionate about this thing that he can't help but be a fucking monster. There are just multiple <laughs> there are just multiple moments where he clearly doesn't care about his compatriots as much mm. as he cares about the mission. Uh, and then and then River Phoenix. I think River Phoenix is uh, that character's great, but like as a kid i did not identify with nerds even though i was a nerd mm-hmm. um i i i think i think a distinction that came later that i think would have been useful to me at the time is that i was a geek like mm-hmm. nerds were good at math and like mm-hmm. had a future and i just i just was i just i just was obsessive i wasn't good at things so like for me for me jason Preston being geeky enough to want to help them but enough of an outsider that he stole beer from his parents even though <laughs> I, my mom didn't drink so i didn't, wouldn't have stole beer but you know what i mean that He's that ready. That, that, yeah, that's, that's right. He's rooting yeah, for the Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That sort of vibe was like a lot more my vibe. As an adult watching it, I'm so blown away by Ethan Hawke because the reality is the hardest role for, I think, to do well is actually the Ethan Hawke role because, like, I bet the actual Ethan Hawke in that role was less of a starry eyed fucking. Uh, 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 naivete than the character was. I bet you actual Ethan Hawke was like, man, this kid's a real fucking nerd. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's, I think, I think selling exactly what Doug was saying that that staring off into the distance and really being a true believer is actually hard, even for a kid. And so, like, as an adult watching it, I think, God damn, Ethan Hawke has always been good. I don't know that his roles have always been great roles, but he has always been, I think very good and i think that comes across here but as a kid watching it i was like yeah he's fine but come on man like get your shit together i will say like the idea that they get this incredible alien technology that they developed from his dream and he convinces his friends that the first thing they should do is him to sit in a bubble so he can stare into the window of this girl that he's obsessed with. <laughs> oh yeah that's <laughs> now of course like now that's, that's like obviously 80s problematic <laughs> yeah that's classic yeah. 80s problematic 100 yeah. percent. but somehow he still remains likable like there's, mm-hmm. there's a comment later on by jason preston's character that that's like kind of semi-sexual but these kids are all like it's a very naive version of of the kind of relationship that he wants to have. He just wants to have a girlfriend, and the kiss at the end is like, that's like, you could see his eyes light up. Like that's the most incredible yeah. possible thing. But it's still so strange for him to be sitting outside that window. There's also something very '80s here that it's worth acknowledging, which is that they're always talking about consequences, but there are no consequences. Oh, yeah, like right. they're always talking about they getting in trouble. Bad That's grades. Right. They destroy they their literally, Oh yeah, they literally, <laughs> like they literally are part of the end of drive-ins in the eighties. Like, like this last. I heard they were shutting that down anyway, so don't worry about it. Uh, this last holdout drive-in is finally destroyed by their fucking antics. But in reality, there's no consequences for them, and that's ultimately like. I think such an eighties movie thing, at least kids movie thing of like, there's danger everywhere, but in the end there's no consequences. Like so how many like, people died when they flew into the fucking <laughs> flew into the concession stand. In right? reality, the, at least yeah. somebody got a concussion, at least yeah. somebody, but in the movie, they should have just added one other shot yeah. of like the, their bullies are just like eviscerated. Their body parts. Yeah, are yeah, exactly. yeah. Courtney Gaines, head is like sitting, it, in, a, it, sitting it was, in a fryer. Like, <laughs> 
it was very it was very weird to watch because I watched it uh, just after watching the season finale of uh, Invincible, in which oh, like don't tell me about that. Oh no! But uh, all I'll say is that there's a lot of gore because the show's like here are the oh, actual yeah, no. consequences of things that would happen in a comic book, and yeah. that's what I thought of when I was watching <laughs> this. Like, yeah, someone would at least have an arm ripped off or a broken leg or something would happen here, and instead they're all just standing there going, "Wow, that was crazy." Yeah. <laughs> so this movie has Joe Dante coming off of the the worldwide international massive success of Gremlins. He has made another, you know, kids Gremlins isn't really at its heart a kids movie, but this is a movie that kind of more directly appeals to kids, very Spielbergian, even more mm-hmm. so than a film that actually had Spielberg kind of uh guiding it a little bit more. We have Explorers, you have an all-star kind of uh, uh production here with uh you have industrial light and magic working on the effects uh you have jerry goldsmith doing the soundtrack and you have rob botin doing the alien effects it's so strange because this movie is kind of all the alien effects don't happen until like the last 45 minutes of the movie a lot Mm -hmm. of people think that that's the the weakest section of the movie and i think i could probably see the perspective on that that said i love how these aliens look i don't know if that's a common feeling or not Maybe it's because I'm so positive about Rob Bottin's work anyway. But, uh, Justin, I wanted to get your thoughts. What do you think about these aliens that we encounter? You already talked about they're kind of obsessed with American popular culture from television and things like that. But in terms of how do they look, uh, what do you think about that? Well, first of all, I really like how how long the buildup was to actually reveal them. And then no kidding because, well, because you get that crazy spider drone, that stop motion yes. spider drone that like mm-hmm. is, is legitimately kind of terrifying for yes. a kid's movie. Like, and then, and then they've got those snout things like sniffing them. And it's like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> they build up and they build up and they build up. And then when you finally meet them, they're these goofy Looney tunes. Like they're, they're completely obsessed with television. They look, I think the makeups are great. Like I think mm-hmm. the, those suits and the animatronics on the head and all that, are really, really good, um, but they're the last thing you sort of expect. I mean, yes. you kind of expect it if you've seen the film before, but I think the audience was probably probably just thrown for a loop because it's such a tonal shift. Mm-hmm. It's it, it goes from wonder and awe to complete satire. And it, 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 that in the 80s, in 1985, that wasn't exactly something that was common in cinema. And Joe Dante is like an anarchist in that way. Like, yes. it, you know, it, all you really got to do is look at Gremlins 2 to understand Joe Dante. <laughs> like, like that was his, the studio begging him to come back and going, I can do anything I want. Okay, here's fuck you the movie. Uh, like, like that's, so uh, that anarchist spirit is definitely there in that last act. And I think people just weren't ready for it. And but mm-hmm. like watching it now, removed from that after years and years of like meta meta um, storytelling in, in film and cinema and adult swim and all of the stuff that like contextualizes you for those kind of like hard left turns into something else entirely. I, I was all for it. I, I really like those aliens. And, the, and then the added twist that they're just fucking kids, <laughs> just like the just like the three kids that are there is just another layer of just just pulling the rug out from under you. And, and when their father walks in and he's like this towering behemoth who doesn't actually speak the language because he's not TV obsessed. Uh, also played by Robert Picardo, because uh, he's like he's he's, at, he's three char- I think he's three weird characters in this. Yes, um, yeah. It's just another layer of like, oh, okay, this is just a madcap absurdity now, and I'm I'm totally for it. But you don't expect it to go there in the first two thirds at all. It's 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 like, oh, what are they into into now? And it's like, oh, they literally walked onto a Warner Brothers set, uh, and uh, and Bugs Bunny's like, what's up, Doc? Is the first line. Yep, that the yeah, the alien absolutely say, right. So, and that carries for like Dante loves fucking Looney Tunes. And the fact that he was a Warner Brothers contract uh, director for a long time, 
led him to the best Looney Tunes movie too. So right. mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you going to do? Um, anyway, yeah, I, I, I like the aliens a lot. Uh, I think they, I do, I will say that the, the awe and the wonder of the first two thirds, I prefer that if I had yes. to pick, if I was like mm-hmm. cut one part of the movie, if I had to pick, it would be that section. But as an overall package, uh, I, I wouldn't change it. It's, it's, uh, it's, it has a lot to say about us as a species too, in a very yeah. sort of fun and anarchic way. And I, I, I appreciate it all. I will say that my memories of explorers is all those first two acts. It's, it, you know, I know that they meet, meet aliens at the end, but when I was thinking about it, all I could think about was kind of the camaraderie between the three kids and then building the machine and then floating in the bubble. It's all the memories of that, but the alien stuff just doesn't register as strongly with me. But l- like you said, at least it kind of, it all directs towards it. And it is a very unique kind of payoff. And uh, yeah, there's this sort of, I've always thought of Joe Dante as having sort of, it might, people might think this is kind of funny if they know him as a, a person, but he has kind of a punk attitude to mm-hmm. how he approaches movies, right? He's not afraid to wrinkle and rustle a few feathers. Liam, your thoughts on the aliens in Explorers? I mean, on a sort of just base level, I just love them. I think when I was a kid, I did find that section a little depressing. Interesting. Only because... Um, it, it it felt kind of sad to me when I was a kid that they needed TV to communicate. Like, even though it's a funny quirk in as an adult, as a kid, I, it felt limiting to me. And then when the dad showed up, that for me as a kid, I read that as like abusive. Like that dad mm. is like a fucking monster. And like, you know, like as an adult, I don't think that's there. But as a kid, I was like, can't trust the dad. You know, like I just, it, 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 it felt dark. And I think that's partly why the ending ending appealed to me even more as a kid because it was like, there's still hope like that almost mm-hmm. like the alien meeting is a downer, but because of this dream thing, they can still connect, you know, um, watching it as an adult. It, uh, I think a lot of times the narrative of like, uh, we're being led into space to meet aliens is like, a. a a secularist reimagination of a religious narrative. We're all mm-hmm. looking for like the big guy in the sky, whether he's human or not to like mm-hmm. reveal the secrets of the universe to us, you know, and it's all about letting go of responsibility to somebody else and not having to take responsibility. So the idea that like they get up there and it's just also irresponsible kids whose parents <laughs> aren't yeah, watching yeah, them yeah. very well is like, in retrospect, really smart, but also really iconoclastic and really suggestion of like, uh, it's only in relationship that we find the revelation is really in relating to equals and not to looking for some sort of fucking uh, light mm. from above. Well, they you know just find I mean? more outsiders, right? That's, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and and possible abuse victims. I still think there's yeah. something going on <laughs> with the third kid. You know what I mean? So like, anyways, the, the point is, is that it's also like you can't trust the past, right? Like, except for... Except for our man, right, who's haunted by dreams he had as a child, every other adult, even the alien adult, is basically shitty or sucky or a waste of time. You know what I mean? Like, even if they're not negative, they're not positive either. They're not helping. And so, like, I think there's something to that of, like, an affirmation of youth of the future of not looking to the past that sort of thing um and 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 whatever uh i i also think the idea that like they've seen so much violence in our media that now they're afraid to interact with us is also i think 
it's interesting, especially from Joe Dante, who has not necessarily not included violence in his films. So, but but it but it, it is worth noticing. I do think it's a it's an early critique of something that's now become a cliche. Everybody knows now. Well, the horror movies of the fifties were about xenophobia, right? Like yeah. the, any film student, even in their first class, is like, "Oh, right, we're scared of the outsider. We want to kill them." So, like that's like seems really obvious. But I'm sure there are people watching this at the time who had never thought about it that way. That might be like, "Oh, that's weird." <laughs> like you know, like yeah. that might be the first opportunity they had to think about that. So, anyways, I think they're also regardless of all the meta stuff we're talking about, they look fucking cool, right? Like they are, <laughs> they're cool. Like even now I'm like, Oh, that shit's cool. Like I just, I can't, cool. I can't believe that Robert Picardo had to actually wear that makeup, right? You think that they could have just used his voice <laughs> and put someone else in there, but Nope, I guess they're just going to torture him. Don't <laughs> care. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> all well, right. You, I don't think you would have got the physicality of his performance. Otherwise, like Robert I, Picardo He's really underrated for this. Even was he was Neelix, right? He's very no, no. He wasn't Neelix. He was the no, uh, no, he, he was the the doctor, right? The doc. He he's got a very uh, physical performance style. Like he, he, even though it's subtle at times, like even in Gremlins two, it's kind of subtle. He, you can tell that he put a lot into the movements as the Absolutely. alien, right? Like he mm. he's 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 putting on a show, right? It's uh, yeah. I would say that he kind of needed to be in the suit to embody that character. I mean, you're probably right, but it must have been such, such an amazing. Oh, it would have sucked. <laughs> <laughs> Let's finish up with talking about Dick Miller, the great Dick Miller as Charlie mm-hmm. Drake. We've already mentioned him several times. Uh, Liam, I'm actually going to stick with you just for a second here. You've talked about the fact that really this this was your first experience with Dick Miller. You didn't even realize it until you revisited Explorers. Uh, one of the things I love about this character is not just the fact that he is it's kind of teased that he's going to be this uh, nemesis to these kids, but he ends up being kind of friendly to them. But just that idea that he is haunted by what he sees, right? right. Because yeah. it reminds him of something that he's lost, something that he used to dream about, just like the Ethan Hawke character dreams about it. And at the end, when he tells the kids to kind of like to, to go get it, to, to go out there and do it, it's because they're able as kids to achieve something that he wished that he had been able to do himself. There's a real kind of wistfulness to it. Uh, and I think that it's captured really well in that performance. Talk to us, Liam, about Charlie Drake played by Dick Miller. I mean, it's, it, it seems like such a small moment. I, I will say he, the fact that he's the only guy who's like, yo, I'm going to investigate what the fuck happened last night. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, there, you know, it, it is, it is one of the, one of the narrative flaws of the film is that only, only Charlie Drake is like, I don't know. I think we can figure this thing out. Like, James Cromwell <laughs> talking to his family over breakfast. Is like, apparently there was a lot of alien <laughs> sightings last night. I yeah. guess that just happened. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's, I'm partly making this joke. I'm partly joking about this because I think if I get really into the context of this character who sees in these kids a, a reminder of who he was and, and something he might have lost and is wishing them well. He's not resentful. He's not a villain. He's like, you know, is is reminded of, of something he used to believe in and seeing them. I don't know how – I mean, you said wistful, Doug, but it's like the wistful that is spiced with melancholy, right? Yeah, like, yes. Like mm-hmm. there, there has to be among us other sad – male and possibly women too but definitely sad boys who might get a little like 
teary-eyed thinking about it. You know what I mean? Like, there's a part of me that's kind of like, oh, shit, I, I want to be one of these kids, but I've become Dick Miller, you know? Yeah. And and so, like, there's, you know, it's, it's hard for me to even articulate the ways that that is both beautiful and difficult and to wonder to what extent. Here's Joe Dante, whose career is to craft dreams into being to take his visions and show them to you for money and how much is he thinking that he's still just this charlie drake character who's Mm -hmm. who's who's sending you on a on an adventure of the imagination that he actually is not capable of anymore (laughs) i don't know i i suspect there's probably more of him there than than is incredibly astute I and you, I think that's awesome. And 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 that's that's great. It's also fucking depressing. And so like, <laughs> there's well, a part. We're all, we're all Dick Miller in this movie. Then yeah. Watching, oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, yep. And, and 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 to know that like, I guess the the suggestion there is, in the situation, would I have been River Feet? Like, how many kids have also had the dream that that Ethan Hawke is having? Mm-hmm. How many kids have right. had that dream? Mm-hmm. That the suggestion seems to be probably a few, maybe not all of them sent by these particular little <laughs> rascals, but that aliens have tried to reach out to us perhaps before, and we just fucking ignore it because uh, you know we're living we're living a real world here, and so like I you know as much I don't want to get too much into saying like the meta whatever of explorers, but I do think like there's just something so relatable about that character, and there's something about it that is like. Uh, really touching, but it also just makes me feel a little bit like I'll I'll I'll, I'll be a little bit in the shade today instead of in the sunlight <laughs> thinking about it. Well, Liam, as they said in the Wild Bunch, we all dream of being a child again, even the worst of us, perhaps the worst most of all. Certainly, I think that is encompassed in uh, in what you just said because Liam, you are the worst of all, and yeah. you obviously dream about. I mean, I, I, I dream about being another child. As a ch- I had a lot of traumas <laughs> like shitting myself as a child, so. <laughs> That sounds like a torture session, but if I could be a normal kid again, that would be great. Justin, I want you to do, give us your final word on Dick Miller as Charlie Drake in Explorers. Well, I think what Liam just said was really, really uh, accurate and astute to me. Like the idea that he's a proxy character for Joe Dante is, and for the audience at large, uh, watching this magic happen through the eyes of an adult, especially all of us now, um, he definitely, I think, has that sense of representing something bigger than just his character in the film. And, uh, you know, he's all of us looking away wistfully at uh, at these kids getting to do what they dreamed of doing as kids. And maybe it it passed Dick by and it passed some of us by or whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever it might be. Uh, But it also might be another layer of like you're talking about how Ethan Hawke just gets this random dream and he's the yeah. only one, maybe other kids got this dream, but he's the one who actually actualized this dream. He, right. he got, he got river Phoenix. They actually built this thing. They brought this technology into being. So I think about Douglas Adams and the, the his concept of where ideas come from, how they're just like these, these uh, quasars floating through space floating and they hit space. They, that's right. Yeah. And they hit people randomly and it's up to the people when they get hit by these ideas to actually actualize them and, and put them into being. And how, and how much that sort of thing is how I le- sort of like live my life where you know, an idea hits me and it's like, okay, can I do this? And I try and do it and that sort of thing. And sometimes I, well, a lot of times I fail and sometimes I succeed. And, um, I do. I think that's kind of why I identify with Dick Miller so much in this movie is because it, it really feels like someone who didn't let go of that sense of creativity and that sense of childhood and that sense of wonder. But he's also been crushed down by years and years and years and years of that having that stripped away from him because life is is uh, life is life. Life is 
um, a crushing grind a lot of the times and all, all that sort of wonder and, and, uh, and imagination gets sucked out of it when you're just trying to work a nine to five job and, you know, fly your helicopter to make sure the skies are safe above your small town. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but ultimately, um, you know, I'd be pre- so Dick probably got hit by that quasar. He probably got hit by that idea when he was a kid and it's always been there sort of sitting in the back of his mind. And just like, watching this movie again uh, after 30 years or so has has like opened up that that those memories of 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 long forgotten dreams and and uh i guess okay here's a, an interesting analogy when i was younger i don't know what, what age i stopped this probably about 13 but when i was younger i had a very elaborate um almost in the realms of the unreal style universe built around myself and it, what, what I mean by that is that uh, the house I lived in, you know, I lived in Halliburton, which is a small town. The house I lived in, I dreamed it was actually uh, uh, the, the the upper decoy part to a massive military facility below it that I was in control of. And every movie or thing I watched or Mortal Kombat or whatever, I would gain the abilities of my favorite characters. So I had like the scorpion <laughs> thing in the palm of my hand that I could fire out. And, uh, you know, I could turn invisible and I could walk through walls and all this shit. I'm a kid. I'm playing, right? Sure. I watch backdraft. So I take like a little cut off hockey stick and I crawl through the the chair legs of the the kitchen table pretending I'm crawling through ductwork or whatever you know whatever it happens to fighting fires because my grandfather was a firefighter too but long story short is all of these sort of things was, was like this this world that I created this internal play world where like to a point where when I grew up enough where I thought I got to put this play world away and focus on like regular life I physically like meant mentally not physically I internally passed my command off to a second income an invisible second in command and and sealed off the facility right so so the point i'm trying to make is like we all have these sort of like childhood like things we create the dreams we hope we can do things we hope we can we can pursue and i think dick miller's character is is sort of a reflection of somebody who still has all that inside them and this seeing this shit Conklin spaceship fly into the sky awakens all of this in him. And mm-hmm. I, and I really appreciate the idea that we basically all are Dick Miller. You know, we, as we get older, we can look back on a movie like explorers and go, okay, yeah, no, the wonder of my childhood is still there and I can watch this movie. And it's like a time portal into that. And I can, I can at least get a sense of it. It's never going to be like it was back then, but I can get a sense of that. And I think the whole nostalgia cycle is, is a lot of that. It's a lot of just people traveling in time, you know, mentally traveling in time and trying to recapture that sense of the world could be anything and I can make anything happen and, and anything's possible that you could get from uh, from a childhood like that. And, and since the 80s is an era where, and the early 90s is an era where you had so many stories about kids, outsiders, uh, you know, the, the, the less popular kids banding together to, you know, actualize either an idea or um or or like fight some sort of an otherworldly evil that only they can see or only they can fight but in you know in a fun way uh, <laughs> it, uh, i i think for our generation the people who grew up in all of that sort of thing our connection to that era is is incredibly strong even and it's lying dormant at all times if if we if we if we absorb this media if we if we let ourselves sort of dream like this so, um, I, yeah, I think that's probably why the 80s nostalgia cycle is also so strong is just because mm-hmm. we, we're all trying to grab something from a simpler time to our perspective. Of course, in real life, it wasn't a simple time, but uh, I feel like I'm rambling now. I just think <laughs> you I, know, I just think anyway, I'll stop. No, no, no. What, what what listening to you talk, Justin, it makes me think of 
you as a creator, as someone who creates and tries to bring your own dreams to life in your films, right? I mean, you are still mm -hmm. someone who you didn't close off that door. It's just now you need to be able to communicate that in a way that fits in with <laughs> the responsibilities of the world. And just mm -hmm. to further draw this into uh, your world, your film, Clapboard Jungle, is about this kind of battle between creative people and the attempts to get that creativity out in the world and then the also the financial responsibilities and the difficulties of distribution and the difficulties of being able to support yourself doing these sort of things you know mm -hmm. it's exactly the sort of thing you don't have to worry about as a kid that you can kind of free range embrace this creativity and like you said just playing and using all these ideas and not really having to filter out things entirely um I yeah. think that we all still have those dreams within us and we all try to, uh, to to express them creatively in some ways. Maybe all is a bit of an exaggeration, but most of us do. And uh, seeing the kind of freedom that children can have in play, and I hope that they still do, is something that, that would make any of us a little bit wistful and maybe leave us staring at them in awe a little bit. Yeah. Justin, yeah, I want to thank Absolutely. Please. Oh, Justin, I was going to say that... Uh, oh, please. I uh, Explorers is actually coming to Blu-ray from Shout Factory in like a month. It's at mm -hmm. the end of May. There's a special edition coming out, so uh, I'm definitely buying that shit for sure. We, we we seem to be nailing these these this timing. We, our last episode was on the Howling, which then had its 40th anniversary immediately afterwards. Yes, I mean, look, I'm guessing that if you are listening to this episode, you're already somewhat familiar with Explorers. Uh, if it, I think. To, to each one of us, it had been a while since we had revisited it, and we all found mm -hmm. it a very rewarding experience. I do, do think it's a very worthwhile movie. I think it, the challenges that it has and some of the difficulties in that third act just make it more interesting in a lot of ways. Um, mm -hmm. Justin, I want to thank you so much for taking time uh, out of your very, very busy schedule to talk to <laughs> us about this Joe Dante classic and to the Dick Miller uh, performance within. Justin, if people want to check out Clapboard Jungle, and I definitely recommend that they do, or your other films, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, uh, Clapboard Jungle, the easiest thing is just to go to clapboardjungle.com and that'll answer every question you could possibly have on to where to see it or find it or whatever else. Uh, you can search my name in most social medias and you'll find me. Uh, my website is unstableground.net. And uh, other than that, I mean, IMDb exists, so that'll help you. <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you there. You uh, can also, of course, follow Justin on Twitter at uh, yeah. Unstable Ground. We'll link all these uh, links in the show notes as well, just to make sure if people want to check it out. But I really can't recommend Clapboard Jungle enough. Uh, I, I I wish that we could spend all our time talking about just that. As someone who has been obsessing about like micro budget cinema over mm -hmm. the last decade or so, like particularly low budget movies. In those cases, the 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 even the dream of making some sort of financial return seems completely unreasonable. But then looking at that level above it, the difficulties that all of these filmmakers, a lot of them graduated into this idea that they can get their movie seen, but they can't necessarily get any money back from it so they can go on and make more movies. It's a movie that is filled with a lot of uh, frustration and a lot of, of difficulty, but having you here on the other end of it, Justin, uh, I find that your story is very inspiring, and I think people will get a lot of inspiration out of your movie. I, I appreciate that. I basically made a movie about cleaning up the drive-in afterwards, after the kids <laughs> fly through the fucking uh, refreshment stand, so <laughs> enjoy. Um, it's a really sloppy metaphor, but uh, it'll make sense. Anyway. <laughs> it will. It absolutely will. Liam O'Donnell, where can you be found, and where can people check out more episodes of Cinema Smorgasbord? Well, if you head over to cinepunks.com, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, you can find not only this podcast, but a whole family of really weird 
dysfunctional family of podcasts that you should check out every single one of, uh, as well as the latest episodes uh, that we have. We also have merch over there and some uh, interesting writing. I'm hoping to get back into writing next week. I got a new series coming out, so keep it keep an eye out for it. It should be should be out. It should be cool. Uh, uh, Liam, do you want to just give a shout out to that uh, event that uh, the Lehigh Valley? creation is good yes uh so uh official sponsors of cinepunks.com is lehigh valley apparel creations and people who know know that uh chris reject who runs that company is a huge wrestling fan and uh before the pandemic was sponsoring regular events that would combine uh, independent wrestling and music. So we'd have a bunch of matches uh, featuring uh, all manner of wrestlers. Uh, some you may have heard of, some you may not have, and uh, with music afterwards. And then he com- he uh, joined Fresh's forces with the Mahoning drive-in and then uh, they would do uh, wrestling and then movies. Uh, so he's bringing back the wrestling and movies event that's on May 21st i believe uh and uh they're showing they live uh and some other wrestling films that escape my, my it's uh, beyond the mat i believe yeah beyond the mat that's correct oh it's uh, not ready to rumble damn it <laughs> i think I, this is the second time they did this event i think they did ready to rumble last time okay. uh, i know they did i know last time they did suburban commando as well <laughs> nice. um anyways uh so uh i don't know the doug do you know the matches i don't I'm not a big I, wrestling person, so I don't always. I, the thing is, I, I love independent wrestling uh, most of all, so yeah. I know the matches. I think it's best that we'll just leave them a link. Anyone who might be interested, that sure, check it follow out the link. Uh, I just it's worth bringing up because I will be there. I'm driving back to the area from Chicago, back to uh, Lee Heighton, I guess, but I'll be in Philly too. But I'm driving back for that event. Um, we'll have some Cinepunk shirts as well as some Rough Cut shirts. We're printing a very exclusive They Live shirt just for that event. Um, we might put them up online afterwards but we might not so if you're in the area or can get to the area uh also i i know that dan champion will be there and he's one of my favorites so uh (laughs) go check that out uh i think that'll be worth it uh and also we just love we just love uh lehigh valley apparel creation so if you have anything you need to get screen printed wherever you are around the country hit them up xlvacx.com you can also follow cinepunks on social media c-i-n-e-p-u-n-x on uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We also have a Facebook group for uh, just sharing all kinds of uh, uh, news and music and movie stuff. And that's uh, the Cinepunks Funtime Hangout Group. Uh, you can also dive in the archive of this podcast over at cinemasmorgasbord.com or follow mm-hmm. us on Twitter at cinemasmorg, S M O R G. That's correct, Liam. And of course, you can follow Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R U L Z. Or you can follow me, Doug underscore Tilly. That's T I L L E. Why? Uh, but for oh, now, I gotta ask you, Bonner yes, Vivant. What is Bonner mm-hmm. Vivant? It's a play on Bon Vivant. The, the oh, okay, yeah, which a friend of mine many <laughs> a year ago uh, had as their uh, social media handle, and I thought it would be so funny just to take something that it all, seems already somewhat pretentious and just yeah. to stick Boner into the first word. Uh, <laughs> since then, no one has found it as funny as I have, <laughs> but I'm stuck with it now. Uh, for now, everybody, we need to take a little Dick Miller break. We'll be back very soon with another Dick Miller classic. Good night, everybody. Nay, nay.